Um, anyone recognize this airport or the lounge from this airport? Anyone? Bonus points if you can. Nope. If, hmm? Is it at O'Hare? O'Hare wishes. <laughs> no, Detroit wishes. <laughs> It's not Atlanta. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll end this road show. Um, this is actually, it's in the Netherlands. Um, I uh, Googled just random image to get for this story. And then, lo and behold, like, I've been there. So anyway, I win. I know where this is. I've sat in this lounge. So anyway, here's our story. Uh, a traveler between flights at an airport went to a lounge, bought a small package of cookies, and then went and found somewhere to sit down. So she sat down, and this is an old-fashioned story because she pulled out a newspaper and began reading. Um, gradually, she became aware of a rustling noise. From behind her paper, she was flabbergasted to see a neatly dressed guy helping himself to her cookies. So not wanting to make a scene, she leaned over, and she took a cookie for herself. A minute or two passed, and then there was a little bit more rustling. And... Um, she looked, and this guy was helping himself to another one of her cookies. So by this time, they had actually come to the end of the package, but she was so angry she didn't allow herself to say anything. And then, as if to add insult to injury, this guy broke the remaining cookie in two and pushed half of it across to her, and then with a smile, he ate his own half. So still fuming, sometime later when her flight was announced, she opened her bag to get her ticket, and to her shock and embarrassment, there she found her pack of unopened cookies. So, um, okay, that one was a little better than the guidepost one, but I know there was a small groan. All right, who, before we got to the end of there, knew it wasn't her pack of cookies? Any of you? For real. Some are like, well, I, now I did, right? You're in on team new. Um, okay, those of you who knew they weren't, or suspected, we should say suspected, um, that they were her cookies, or the other guy's cookies and not her cookies, you are kind people, and you actually get to go home. So, because this message, you've already in your heart absorbed kindness, you already look for the best in other people, you start from a place of seeing good in others. The rest of us, uh-huh, team, my cookies, um, you know, that feeling of somebody doing something or taking something that is rightfully yours and what that stirs up in you. And so for those of you who kind of default to the place of looking for the good in others, for living from a space of kindness, um, good on you. And that is a reflection of God at work in you and a reflection of the character of God, actually. Those of us who are maybe more prone to see uh, this story for, like, like this passenger, um, there's challenge for us, not, not in the story, that's a silly story, but there's challenge for us in God's word, in who he calls us to be, what he's calling us from, and how we are to really live this out. So when I say be kind or live kindly or have kindness or just kindness, what do you think of? What, how would you define kind or kindness or what would you say describes a person who lives uh, a life of kindness? Hmm? Generous? It's good. Thoughtful? Okay, this section's making you all look bad. Servant? Good. Putting others before yourself? I'm not keeping score, but 0013. Forgiving, that's good. You're on the board. <laughs> Took yours. <laughs> Half a point. <laughs> Gryffindor. Okay. Uh, these are all great. Um, these are great. Kindness is in much like many of the aspects of the fruit, not fruits, fruit of the Spirit. Um, they are things that you recognize when they're there. You can identify when they're not there. But when it comes time to like put a hard definition on it, 
Um, Webster's doesn't maybe seem like it's enough. Or it's, it's a little bit elusive. You know what it is, but to define it is a little bit... Mm. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at this through the lens of the text that we've been soaking in um, through this series. And this is from Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. So, but the fruit of the Spirit is... Let's do this together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, this is the point where we usually just dive straight in on last week it was forbearance and the week before peace and, and you know the thing. But before we get too far into this, before we really look at kindness, um, it's, it's interesting to me that, um, I don't know about you, I grew up in a church environment where we would just, we call it parachute drop into the middle of a text. So we would take this text, we would unpack this text, sometimes it would be half a verse, and then the pastor would just teach. And I can remember as a kid in my ADD, like um, sitting there with my Bible and reading stuff before and reading stuff after, and like if there was a footnote, checking the footnote, and then when I borrowed my dad's study Bible, I would look and I'd go, oh, this cross-references to places. And the pastor would be talking and I'd be flipping and looking and going, oh, that talks about that there as well. So there's something very interesting in, in doing that or in studying Scripture that way or coming to the Bible in that way. It's not that it's not true. It's not that we can't parachute drop into a place and have God speak to you. Maybe you've done the thing that everyone warns against, which is you've said, God, I need you to say something, and you've opened the Bible, put your thumb somewhere, read something, and actually had it kind of say something to where you were. Anyone ever done that? It's not a shame thing, or you shouldn't do that, or whatever. It's not the best way, because you might end up somewhere that you didn't realize you were going to be. Then you've got to do something with that. But on the other side of things, just taking the smallest thing, we talk about this, it's not the best way to study a thing. The, read it, pull the camera back. What's before, what's after? Pull the camera back more. What's in a chapter before this or a chapter after? Pull the camera back some more. What's going on in the whole of the book? And if you're really weird, you could pull the camera way back and then go, is this in step with themes that say here, because this is Paul writing, the things Paul says? Or is there something unique in this bit that he doesn't really say anywhere else? or whatever. So that's a, a great way to study this, and that's actually what we're going to do a little bit today. Um, and so in this, uh, so we have the fruit of the Spirit against such things. There is no law. Remember in the book of Galatians, Paul's writing to the church in uh, modern-day Turkey. It's not just one specific church in the city of Galatia that didn't exist. It's kind of a bunch of churches in a region so he's writing to these churches, and the thing that he's pushing against in these churches is that there had, since he had left, there had been false teachers that had come in and begin to steer the hearts of the people away from the simplicity of the good news of the gospel into, hey, it's that sure, but that's 101, and to really get this and have it stick, you need to start following these rules better. And so, um, so anyway, so that's why he says against such things there is no law. He's kind of playing on that idea of like we need more law. So, but then he says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then we're going to end and circle back to since we live by faith in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So, um, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's not an easy declaration if it's true. It's not an easy declaration then for Paul to have said. For us, we've got 2,000 years away from when crucifixions were kind of a thing. So it's kind of churchy language. 
So as soon as we say something like, I've crucified my flesh with my passions and my desires, it has this air of Sunday school or this air of church, and it lives in that space from 9 to noon or whatever on a Sunday. But in that context, in that first century, for Paul to say this was a bit like, where's he going with this? That I'm putting to death something, and not just something, but like my passions and my desires. Now it's tempting to only talk the good side of life of following Jesus. And it, to have messages where we just tack on church stuff onto the life that we are already living, thank you very much. And in reality, we don't have to do too many clicks online to find people who have made their whole entire church ministry out of taking out the sharp edges of Scripture or out of the Bible or out of the life God calls his people into. Um, and, but more than just that, we live in a time where it's a don't tell anyone else they need to change or give something up or say no more to something in their life. Now, that's an easy thing to say in, in the church. But it's actually not all the way true. We don't live in a time where people aren't allowed to say no or don't or change. We don't live in a time where that isn't true. We live in a time where people are actually very good at saying give this up or change that or say no to that thing. But the problem is, is that culturally we are good at saying it to those who are other. And it's only said to those who are not on my team, not in my tribe, not on my side. Now this morning isn't about a cultural war. I was just thinking through where we were going this morning as we were singing these great songs of God's grace and God's mercy and God's goodness and also my wretchedness and my need for grace and my need for mercy. And it's very easy to gather on a Sunday. I mean, let's be honest and give ourselves a pat on the back. You're out of the house on a Sunday morning. You're at church. And maybe you had a battle to get here. Or maybe that was just my family growing up that to get to church on Sunday, I felt like we should have a little bit of a reward. Somebody should give something to my mom and dad because my two brothers and I did not make it easy to get there. And 30 seconds before we got into the door, we were still making it not easy to be there. And, but, actually, I have no idea where that was going to go. In my mind, that was a really good point. In reality, it wasn't a good point at all. Oh, I know. Okay, okay. If we're honest, the good news of Jesus, it does declare the need to change to those who do not yet follow Jesus, have not believed, have not surrendered. Right? That's the good news. It is, you can't make it on your own. You could never make it on your own. God loves you exactly where you are. He meets you in the place where you are. In fact, he not only meets you there, but he knows you. In a culture of anonymity and of incredible isolating loneliness, the good news that God actually knows you, like knows you. And I know in church world we say he knows how many hairs are on your head. And you've already probably filled in that blank mentally, some of us. But the most intimate thing in your life, the thing you are most afraid of, the thing you are most hopeful for, yeah, your deepest struggles, and yes, your grandest victories, God knows those things. He knows them. He knows you. And so that's good news. It's that tension between God knows you and loves you exactly where you are. He meets you in that place, but that place will never on its own get you into right standing or right relationship with him. That we needed a rescuer. That no matter how much we try to not lie, not steal, and not murder our neighbor, which are pretty good things, 
No matter how much we try to do those things, we're always going to come up short. And it's not a matter of just coming up short and, well, I'll try better next time, and at the end, if I give it the old, you know, college try, it's going to work out in the end. That isn't what the Bible says. But the great grand news, you're like, Jay, I already know this. Let's move on. This is, see, the reason week after week after week after week we retell this, it's the same reason we take communion week after week after week after week. It's because, well, a couple things. One, we live in a culture that screams a message opposite of this. The culture you live in says work harder, try harder, do more. You're not enough. But if you buy this, consume this, spend this, save this, date this, marry this, work this, drive this, then you'll be enough. And as a culture, when we pull back from that a little bit, we've actually seen what happens when the consumers pull back just a little bit, haven't we? We're a culture and an economy that moves by the lie of you are not enough. Your house isn't enough. Your marriage isn't enough. Your job's not enough. Now, the gospel also says you're not enough. But the opposite is our culture says, so buy more, spend more, move more, pursue more, acquire more, do more. And the good news of Jesus, you know this is you can't more, but God has met you in your brokenness and emptiness in failing in sin and death. And that's the good news. And that's the good news. So that's good news to those who are not yet believing, but who are being pursued by the God of the universe. That is the good news to those who have stepped into faith, who are in the process of being saved. That's Paul's message to the church there in Galatia. And we see it in this chapter. There's this tension in the church there, and in the church always, to begin by receiving the gift of salvation through Jesus. It was our text today in Ephesians 2 that it is this good gift and then once you are in on it to then, well, that's a great entrance, but from now on it's about the rules and the lists and the doing or the not doing. And to that, Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now, right before this text, the wonderful fruit of the Spirit text Scripture fills in the details on what the passions and the desires of what we followers of Jesus are told to put to death. So if we pull back the camera a smidge, Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16, if there's parents, don't worry, we're going to PG this. Even though I don't want to, but you're making me. <laughs> Just kidding. Verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Have you felt that? Have you felt this sense of my natural tendency, my default is to this, but I know that's not what God wants from me. I know that's not God's best. I know that ends in, in destruction or whatever. Paul says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then this could be the fruits of the flesh. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sim sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul isn't writing this like with a microphone to those outside the church. That's the mental picture I often have when I come to this, when my brain goes to culture war. See, we live in a time, not only is it driven by consumerism, but it's also another one of the things that's driving our time is this language of culture wars. 
Paul, Jesus lived in a time where there were culture wars. To be a kosher Jew in Palestine in the first century under the rule of the Roman Empire was a culture war. What do I do with Caesar and his taxes? What do I do with the Torah law? What do I do with this area where I live? What do I do with sacrifices? What do I do with... There were culture conflicts. But if you soak in the Gospels, very rarely do we find Jesus engaging the dialogue of the culture battle of the day. Why? Because he didn't care? No, because he knew that wasn't the issue. See, in a, in a time where we've lost the sense of my own personal wretchedness and we've moved it only to institutions, when we talk about others changing and not me changing, then it becomes language and dialogue of culture wars. It's conservatives against liberals. It's left against right. It's whatever. And it's not that there's not tension between those things, but follower of Jesus, we are to live other than that. Other. The life of a Christ follower is marked by love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness. A culture war says kindness is weakness. And to be kind is to get stepped on. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those, remember in the Beatitudes, he goes through all of these things that are the underside, the, the, the ones that you didn't want to be because they had no social standing and they had no merit, no worth, no weight. And God goes, Jesus said, blessed are you when you were here. So what do we do with this tension of culture war? Don't worry, this isn't all just social commentary. But what do we do with this? Follower of Christ, can I invite you to live above it? It's not that these things aren't there, but these are man-made divisions to separate you from neighbors, to isolate you, to monetize your attention on only one news source. Follower of Christ, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Are there tensions in our culture? Yeah. Remember last week, Paul said, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with others around you. That would get zero hits on the nightly news opinion stations. Zero. Well, tonight I've got a guest on, and they're going to talk about how to live at peace with everyone around you. Turn the channel. But that is who God calls us to be and to live. If that's a little smidge too political, it's not political. It's not about politics at all. It's about being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first, which means dying to myself and my passions. Now, in the good old days of my uh, dripping pharisaical legalism, we would uh, work through all of these. But listen, you know what these live out as. You've felt the aftermath of it. You've been bruised by it because others have gone after it. We don't need to define sin in ways that are there. Now I've made a whole list of others. Because the point of what Paul's saying here is investigate yourself in your own heart. And when I turn this list and put it on others and go, there, now you can't be in my community, we're missing the point of what Paul's doing. And so it's not that I'm downplaying these things, but these aren't things to uh, see as symptoms of an outside. They are points for me to come to God in humility when I see them in myself. And the good news of this, and we saw this, Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We sometimes split these verses apart so that we don't have this tension of Paul saying, look, it's by grace you've been saved through faith in Jesus. It's not something you work yourself. It's a gift of God. Oh, and it's not by your works so that you can't boast about how awesome you are. But you are God's handiwork, workmanship. You're his Sistine Chapel. You're his symphony that is being completed. You are his Grand Canyon Vista. You are whatever you think of when you think of something beautiful. You're his handiwork. And what does that mean? It means that you were created in Christ, which is a mystery, to do good works. You're not saved by good works and the things you do, right? But you also weren't created to do nothing in Christ Jesus. Church kids, listen, I'm not going to beat up on you, but listen, I'm a church kid. My dad was an elder in the church. He was on boards that tried to run a pastor out of town. The pastor didn't go anywhere. I've known church conflict. I've grown up in church. I've been around church. Church kids, if, no, rewind, when, you have been around church things and faith for an amount of time, it will begin to lose its luster. It won't be quite as exciting. You'll know where the message is going. You'll have already done the church picnic. You'll been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. Church kids. The way to keep your faith real and alive in your life is to get your head around this reality that you were made to do good works. You're not saved by what you do, but you weren't made to do nothing. You were made to do good works. And as a youth pastor for a lot of years, this was the thing I tried to tell my students, and I don't know how much it got in because I don't know how much it got in when I was a teenager. But there are times in our lives where we feel very close to God, and there are times in our lives where we feel like none of this means anything at all. Why am I even in it? And the path out of this space and the way to live whole and healthy is to continue to do the good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. So what are those good works? What are they? Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says. What are the good works? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, patience, goodness, meekness, other isses. These are the things we're called to live. If your faith is only sin avoidance, if your faith is only staying away from the things that Paul had ugly in the front half of that, it's going to be shallow and empty and you'll walk away from it. If you begin to grow in your life, God has called me to love. Love the unlovable. Forgive the unforgivable to have joy in brokenness and to give joy. To live with forbearance or with long-suffering or with patience. To live a life of kindness. Well, then it gets, then it gets exciting. And then it gets dangerous. It gets dangerous. So the reason I'm zeroing in on the students this morning is because last week I zeroed in on the parents and said, parents, you have to allow your kids to begin to, to grow in a place of risk where they take some of this on themselves. Last week was a push against the parents. Are you willing to let your kids fail? And the question's still the same to the parents. But this week, students, are you willing to really engage this or is it just for your folks? Is it just for your folks? And here's the good news, and here's the exciting thing. Um, it's fun to see 
students engaging this. Yeah, it's cool to have like the Sullivan clan up here helping and leading worship or having students on the stage doing things or students downstairs even right now serving. That's awesome. It's even more awesomer of you engaging this in your actual, in your neighborhoods. Because every neighborhood has a kid that it's easier to ride your bike away from than toward. Let's be honest. And do what do you do with that? So the reason this is more than just a, hey, do more, because that's not the message. If what you're hearing this morning is, I don't do enough kindness, Jay's mad at me. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, I'm the, the chief of sinners when it comes to being unkind. We are to grow in a life of kindness because it is a reflection of God's character. Titus, a book that is much skipped over because it is not an easy book. It's super short, so there's this idea that's like, hey, I should just plow through Titus and like check off a book of the Bible because I'm going to be awesome. Then you get into it and he's like, husbands this, wives this, slaves this, older women this. And it's like, ooh, um... Maybe that was just back in the day. But Paul, as he's writing down this letter to a dude named Titus, who he had left behind in Crete after one of their missionary travels, Paul leaves Titus in Crete so that he could help um, shore up the church there, build them up, encourage them. Paul had places to go on, but if you've ever, when I was in college, okay, this is how unkind I am. When I was in college, one of the years, and we all have college stories, but we were in the dorms, and it was finals, and it was the middle of the afternoon, and one of the guys on my floor, I went in, we, buddy, my roommate and I went into the, into the sh- bathroom where the showers were, and we heard a shower going. Like, nobody takes a shower in the middle of the day. And so we went back in our room, and I had a tub of hot cocoa powdered mix. <sighs> And so we went back in, and I took this tub of hot cocoa powder mix and just dumped it over the shower and ran away laughing. And from the shower, we hear a guy on our floor, who shall be nameless, yell out at us, you Cretans, called us Cretans. And I went from having like this twinge of guilt of my conscience to what did I just do to like then amping up, making fun of this guy, because who calls anyone Cretans? Have you ever called anyone a Cretan? It comes actually from Paul's letter to Timothy where he is writing to them and he says, everybody knows the saying that Cretans are liars. But be more than that. And here was this guy called us Cretans. We're like, (laughs) and then in reality, it was one more exposure of the unkindness in my heart. And Paul writing to Titus, who's there in Crete, trying to change the culture of, of the church community and the greater community of, says this, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, And always be gentle toward everyone. There's probably some things to say in that, but we won't. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. 
these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Paul writing to this young leader, Titus, who's in this really difficult space, says, tell everybody to quit talking politics and just live. And then he says, remind them of who they used to be, but who they are no more. Not because of who they are, but because of the kindness and love of God our Savior. Who they used to be, who they are not anymore. Because of the kindness and love of God our Savior. This isn't a God in his words saying something that we shouldn't expect because in Luke, Jesus says, but love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Obviously, Jesus didn't know how money works, right? Oh, then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now listen, this is the NIV. In the King James, it's a lot angrier. But it says the same thing, actually. Love your enemy. Be kind to those who are unkind to you. Give without expecting anything in return. I'm just kidding, the King James says the same thing. I shouldn't have said that that way. But see, we've, we've taken this message and we've said, oh, isn't that nice? And then we give it to Thanksgiving holiday and only let it live there in the rest of the year we soak in vitriol and in culture war language in us versus them stuff and it's only pointing the camera out that people need to change their lives it's never looking at myself and listen last thing i'm saying about our culture but there's i was reading some things and listening to some things and it hit me we live in a time that takes no personal responsibility for our wrong, but we are adamant about institutional wrongs. And I'm not saying there aren't institutional wrongs. There are. But not at the expense of my own personal wretchedness that is in need of a Savior. Jesus didn't come to save whatever institution he came to rescue you. Okay, last thing about our culture. Let's move. Kindness isn't a state of mind or a mood. It's an action. Kindness, if you look it up, is a noun. Can a noun be an action or only verbs, actions? I don't know. Somebody said this, and I quoted it, so it's true. Kindness isn't a state of mind or a mood. It's an action. It's an action. Google this week the origin of the random act of kindness. It's a true story. It's a professor, well, you don't have to Google it. It's a professor out in California, and he caught one more news story of a random act of violence, a senseless, random act of violence. And it struck him, why is it only this way? And so to his class, he came up with this project where he said, let's do this where we have, what if we challenged a daily random act of kindness and Oprah got a hold of it and it just got weird, I know. But in that moment, they printed bumper stickers. They put it on each one of the police and sheriff's cars for the county. It became this subversive underground movement, more than just a pay-it-forward at Starbucks that really makes the cashiers get upset. But, but a genuine, true thing. And then each time the class got together, they talked about what, what did you do and what was the response and how did that go and where is it going? It's interesting that in a culture as bent as ours, that that could take off. And I think it's an echo to who we were created to be. That folks go, that's right, there's something more than just me first and mine. One pastor writes, kindness isn't a state of mind or a mood or an, it's an action, but until it becomes a natural part of who you are, it needs to be an intentional action. That means 
until kind action flows naturally from you because your heart is killed, killed, filled with kindness, you have to practice kindness. He goes on, he says, kindness isn't just helping someone across the street or rescuing a cat from a tree. It's not just good deeds you put into your schedule as part of your practicing kindness master plan. This kind of kindness really doesn't get in your way. It doesn't require that you change your schedule or your lifestyle or your mood. It's kindness light. Do nice things without really changing your day. And sometimes kindness doesn't work like that. See, we don't have time to unpack this all the way. This is where I thought we were, all that was going to be like a 10-minute intro, and then we'd really get into this. But then it's got a little longer, and so this is actually a two-parter. But the place of a story that we could look in Scripture to have an example of kindness, the low-hanging fruit is the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is Jesus saying this is what kindness looks like, to love without strings attached. But there are some great other stories of kindness in the Bible. Judges, the end of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse and the last chapter of the book of Judges were pretty early in the history of Israel. It says, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And the very next turn is the book of Ruth. And some of you are familiar with the book of Ruth and the story of Ruth. Some of you are a little fuzzy on the details of it. Next week, we're really going to dive in on the book of Ruth. There's some weird cultural things going on there that I think are worth bringing out. But even deeper than that, there is multiple examples of kindness at the expense of the person living it for the blessing of those receiving it. And so next week we're going to take a look at the book of Ruth and how that can shape the way we live out kindness. God, 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 sorry, <clears throat> southern in me. God calls us to live more than just what we see fit to live. This isn't a good description of the people at the time. See, and we can call on the compassion and the kindness of God. We touch this psalm often, but Psalm 86 in closing the writer says, arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. What an image of that prayer. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Now, I know theologically God is everywhere. There is nowhere God is not. And so that's a weird thing to pray, turn to me. But if you've ever been in a space where there is someone of importance or someone that has something you need and they won't even turn to look at you, you've felt the desperation of this prayer. God, turn to me. God, see me. God, know me. God, rescue me. Save me because I serve you, just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Tony Campolo, who spoke at my Bible college, so I don't, know what that does for folks, but he is a storyteller, pastor, tells about an incident that happened to him on his way into work. 
Walking the sidewalk pathways of downtown, Tony would often pass by a number of homeless folks and just down on their luck people. And from time to time, they would make a request for money, and he said generally he would ignore them. But one day, a woman came up, and he had seen her before in his mad dash to get from point A to point B without being asked for something. And she shuffled out of a coffee shop with a steaming cup of hot coffee. And he says their eyes met, and he forced a smile. She put down her coat and her things, and she called out to him, Hey, mister, would you like a sip of my coffee? Now, if you were Tony, how would you respond? Hey, mister, would you like a sip of my coffee? Do you keep walking and ignore her? That's actually what he did. Or at least he started to. And he got about a half a block, and then he turned back and he said, Yeah. Yes, actually, I would like a taste of your coffee. And she held out the cup with her dirty hand, and he looked at the cup and he swallowed what had to be the most delicious cup of coffee he had tasted in a long time. Isn't it good, she said. Yeah, he said. Thank you. And then he asked her, why did you offer me your coffee? And she said, because it was so good, I thought someone might like to share it with me and enjoy it too. There's no point to this. Listen, sometimes we live at such a high academic headspace when we come to Scripture or we engage God. I don't know if you're like me, but that's, that's where I'm usually, my head's going or trying to be. And so when I read David say, give me a sign that I know you've heard me and that you have compassion on me, my brain then jumps to the next so I can shame my enemies. But there is such a genuineness in this prayer. I know, we're not supposed to fleece God. That's still true. But God, could you just give me maybe a sign or a something that you know me, see me, love me, have compassion on me, have met me in kindness? And Tony had an amazing cup of coffee. Why? Because here was somebody who had it and knew it was good and just wanted to share. Was that a groundbreaking, change-his-life-trajectory moment? Probably not. Did it make it into a book? Yeah. But what would happen in our lives if we recognized that God actually does do this stuff through others. In Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it is said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But what I tell you is, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even the worst in our time do that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing any more than others? Don't even the fill-in-the-blank do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is also perfect. Oh, perfect, I can never do that. Move towards completion as your Father is completely whole. The character of our God, an aspect of it, is kindness. Do we see it? Do we live it? Are we becoming more wretched or more redeemed? more unlike Christ or more shaped in the likeness of Christ. The kind of person who gets angry because somebody's eating our cookies or the kind of person who just has to share their cup of coffee with somebody because it's just so good. You are God's handiwork. 
created in Christ Jesus, who prepared good work for you to do. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you, God, that you in real life meet us where we're at and in real life love us too much to leave us there. God, help us to unlearn the words of our time that are so good at pointing out in others what they need to change. God, help us to recognize in our lives what you are in process of putting to death, of calling us out of, of calling to life. May your Holy Spirit grow in us your fruit. Show us how we can partner with you to tend and cultivate. Show us what needs to be pruned. Good gardener, prune it. God, grow in us love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning, like every morning, we close with communion. This is sacred mystery space. It's altar.